Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we speak with the writer, Hannah Boss. She's a co-creator and showrunner of HBO's Somebody Somewhere. It's a story about a middle-aged woman named Sam, who's played by Bridget Everett, who deals with grief and self-acceptance and struggles to fit back into her hometown in Kansas. It's an excellent series. In this conversation with Hannah, we discuss her journey as a storyteller. We look at how collaboration is a key part of her writing process. And we ask her about how she ended up writing the series for HBO. Hannah's characters are superbly constructed, and we dive into how she considered internal character development for somebody somewhere and her tips for writing about friendship. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Hannah Boss. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Hannah. Hi, thank you for having me. I like what you guys do. This is great. We are so honored for you to be with us. And a special shout out to Lindsay, who connected us, who's, a, I think, a neighbor and good friend of yours. So thank you, Lindsay, for bringing Hannah into our life. And we like to rewind the clock a bit back on the writers we interview. And so we're curious, do you remember your first experience with writing as a kid? My writing and acting stuff sort of overlap. So I'm not sure when I started writing things down, but it was whatever the same muscle was for sort of storytelling happened to me very early because it was sort of a combination of things where I grew up outside of Chicago in Evanston, Illinois. My mom had a store in Chicago and then she moved to Evanston. And so I would work in her store, which was an antique store. And it was like a very funky, magical place that often theaters and prop designers like John Hughes set people or like the Goodman or Steppenwolf or just smaller things too in smaller theaters, they would come in and they'd look for props in my mom's store. And she kind of had this agreement where she would give like free delivery in her minivan where she took out the seats and she would bring her myself. And if we could deliver it for free to a theater or to a set, we would get to walk around the set just for a really quick visit. So I got to sort of see the behind the scenes of theater and film really early, but I was in no part of it or had any connections or anything. I just saw the sort of the inner workings of it. And because I grew up with all this stuff, which makes its way into my work all the time, literally like like objects and the stories that they tell. I'm looking at my desk and it's just like full of weird things. My whole house is full of weird objects. But we'd also go into people's homes and we would see after someone passed away what they left behind. And that was like this instant connection to storytelling and imagination. And that's also one of the things that got me doing story theater at the Pippin Theater Workshop as a kid doing this like collaborative story theater. And I did it when I was very young. I think a teacher encouraged my mom to try to get a scholarship to go. And I started doing the story theater, which is very collaborative. And again, that same muscle of storytelling, which we would sort of do live. I don't remember when we started writing things down, but like at some point we were writing things down and memorizing them and they became these stories. So I started doing it at a very young age. And it's the same feeling, those early like storytelling collaborative things are the same things that I sort of do with Paul and my theater company. Just whatever that feeling is of trying to figure out a story, working with other people. And then also now it's weird, like when we're vibing in a television writing room, some of the best moments of being like an aha moment of finding something together is a similar feeling I had as a kid playing make-believe with friends in my mom's store's basement with like old Victorian wheelchairs. Love that. So it's one thing to be intrigued by story and to have fun with it in school and quite another thing to say, okay, this is, I think this is a career I can build for myself. Do you remember at what point you thought, okay, this could be a sustainable career for me? Well, I don't tell many people this, but I didn't learn how to read till fifth grade. And so I think some of this storytelling and memorizing and thinking about words 
it was the story and the pieces and the memorizing and the mapping of stories for me sort of was very much ingrained in my head more than the reading side of words because that came very late to me. We like tested. I was like a daughter of a single mom. We tested for all these things, but we never really figured out what it was. So I learned very late how to read. And then when I started reading, I like tried to make up all these years of not reading and like in fifth grade reading like children's books and then sort of making my way through it. So I've always felt like behind on everything. But the good thing is, I can't believe I'm a writer as a profession now. The good thing is that I was able to map in my brain the stories I was telling. And I still have that in my brain. And I use that when I talk about making the wall of a play with Paul. I can see these things and move them around. And I also have the same thing when I'm in a writer's room, when I'm seeing the season or I'm seeing a story, or even when I was like teaching at the National Theater Institute, students how to like teach, do plays. I have this mind memory map thing that is strong because I didn't actually get the words until sort of later, which is so funny because like dialogue is so important to me. Like bad dialogue is always so hard for me. Like I just, I'm such a stickler for dialogue and words and the choice of words that people and characters are using. So that came a little bit later, the writing down part, but I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's just sort of how my brain sort of worked. I don't actually talk about that much. I mean, I'm probably dyslexic, but I'm not sure. But even the map stuff is so great. Like when Paul and I have gone to a city and we haven't been there in like 20 years, I'll be able to find my way back because that's the way my brain works. And that's what's great about having a collaborator. He has a bigger vocabulary than I do. But my brain is really good for literal maps, but also maps of seeing a whole world. Yeah, it's interesting how something that can feel like a hindrance or a handicap actually can yeah. be something that is a superpower of sorts. Yeah, and we'd love to dig into some of this. We will a little bit as we get to talk about your screenwriting, but we'd love to start a little bit continue, but a little bit earlier on in your journey. You started your theater company, The Debate Society, in 2004, along with Paul, I believe. Oliver Butler, yes. And Oliver Butler. What's the origin story of your theater company? Paul and I wrote our senior thesis in college together. And it was this two-person play that we did it based on Daniel Harms's work and his incidents, these little teeny short pieces. I wouldn't even say they were poems. They were like these mini stories that were really dark and twisted. And we sort of used those and then wrote some of our own stuff and made this play like loosely inspired by him. And we played all these characters and we like felt so great about that play that when we were young and bold, when we moved to the city, we're like, we're going to do a reading of our senior thesis because we don't have any connections. We don't know anyone. We don't have any money. So we were like, we're going to put on a play. So we rented the downstairs theater at the drama bookstore in Times Square from Tommy Kale, Hamilton's Tommy Kale, because they had that space, his company at the time. And we like rented it from him. We had a friend play like an upright cello or bass. And we had vodka pickle toast after this reading of our senior thesis. I mean, that's like what young 20 year olds, I don't know what we were thinking, but that's it was so important to us that we did all of, all those things. And we had this great reading and Oliver saw it and he wanted to direct our senior thesis, but we had never collaborated with anyone but the two of us. So we said yes. And we took like a month to sort of figure out how to sort of insert a third person into this thing that was a very two-person development. And then we found this new way of working with Oliver and we had this outside eye. And then we all, we sort of grew over many years of making this theater company. So we put that play on and it was really lovely. I think the first month he just watched us work. And then the second month he sort of figured out his role and we found this beautiful, almost almost 20 years of making plays together. And so we produced that. And then lo and behold, the tiny theater that we like did stoop sales and chili cook-offs to pay for, because no, we didn't, we all were working nine jobs. There was like a piece of paper from the fire department that wasn't renewed from the 1800s. So they shut down our production because of like some weird bureaucratic thing. But because we signed a contract, we got all our money back. So in the end, we walked away from doing a show and we had money we had made, we had ticket sales and then we also had the money for the down payment. So we had a little bit of money and we were like, well, let's take this money and do another show. And then we applied for a grant. And then we were like, okay, let's have a company. And then we became a nonprofit. And just one thing led to another. I think we have 10 full length plays in the end. And as we grew older, we also grew together figuring out how to collaborate better. Like at the beginning, we didn't really know how to articulate in arguments and we didn't know how to get through tough moments. And we and threes are always hard, even with little kids. Like I have a six-year-old, like someone's always left out. So it's hard to like be creative and passionate and care about things, but also share your ideas and be vulnerable 
And then there's ego. And we always talk about how hard it is to sort of make something with a group of people without someone feeling a little bit of heartbreak because they're you're sharing things that you care about and you're really putting yourself out there. We can talk about that later. But anyway, we had this, once we got on a roll, we had figured out this amazing way of making stuff together in this collaborative way. And it was lovely. Sounds dreamy. Sounds wonderful. Totally dreamy. And yeah, I'm curious about, when you look back at the, like you produced over 10 plays with this theater company, what are you most proud of from all these years of having collaborated and produced? As I look off into the window, what yes. am I most proud of? I'm happy we did it when we were young. Oh, I'm going to tear up. I'm glad we did it. I am going to tear up. I'm glad we did it when we were young. And it was like the world felt really open. I don't know why I'm crying, but like we did it when we were young and we had the energy. Like I like I like was wiping down the counter today and I like pulled my neck and I was like, I pulled my neck wiping with a paper towel. I feel like when we were younger, we just had all this energy and we could just like go all night. And Paul and I were like working nine jobs, waiting tables. And then we'd wake up after like working crazy waiting tables and we would just like get up and write a play and do that all day. And I think as life sort of catches up on you, you get older, you have kids, you take care of your parents. That's a big, heavy thing that happens mostly a lot of times in America. We just have no system for it. I feel like although that's great material that we'll all use to write about, it's just life gets a lot heavier on you and your body and your heart. And I'm glad that we made this company and had no fear early and did it. I just like, you know, we would just like, we would just like move our own sets at the end of the night. And now I'm like the age I'm at. And I'm like, if we had to break down a set every night, I would die. But yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's, I mean, when you describe your sort of life back then setting it up, it sounds incredible. It sounds like such a journey. Like we would ask every person we knew to drop off. This is like pre-bed bugs in New York. Not going to lie, that's my biggest fear. But we'd ask every person we know to like donate things. We were like, we'll take anything and we'll do a stoop sale. And we knew one family who had a brownstone and they let us use their stoop. And like every two times a year, we would do these enormous stoop sales. But we would collect things from like every borough all over the city on the subway, bags of stuff. It'd be like random socks, a dresser, like anything just to put on these plays. So those are the kind of things where I'm like, I'm glad we did that with her when we were young, because now that would have just... I mean, it's still a hustle, but there's less schlapping. Right. And so much has happened since you started that company. And of course, we're going to be talking about your series as well soon. But you told us recently that you've made the decision to wind down the debate society. Can you tell us anything about that decision? Is it simply the right time? Yeah, it just it felt like I mean, we're just winding down the nonprofit. And we've been talking, we checked in like all the time during the pandemic. We've checked in and the pandemic just it just kept going on so long. And I think we're all in this really good place and we're coming up to almost 20 years of making these plays together. We have this one play that's unproduced and we want to do that, but maybe we don't have to do it as a nonprofit. I think it's very complicated to be a nonprofit and it was too much work to take care of a board and the taxes and all those pieces it was just too much. And if we want and when we want to come back together and do this last play, The Care and Feeding of Adults, which is tremendous play that we have not done yet, then we can still be the debate society, but we don't have to have our nonprofit to do it. And we don't have to have the pressure that we've had to do all the other things you have to do with running a company. We can just be exactly what we stated we wanted to be at the beginning, which was just these three people making plays together. Yeah. And you rightly point out there's so much of the creative side that is also the admin and the taxes and the things that we don't enjoy. Yeah, and we take it very seriously. We always said that the same care that goes into the play has to go into the postcard, into the emails. We would all read each other's emails that went out in the world. Every side of the business stuff, we had to like really make it be part of the experience of going and walking into the play. And when you don't get to the plays, that's a lot of work just to do it without the plays. And it's just a lot of work. So we're going to take a little moment and... It just also felt great to like go out on a bang when we're all like getting along and happy and it just felt like the right thing to do. Now you're in a different place and I'd love to talk about your latest series, Somebody Somewhere. I'd love to talk about your experience as a screenwriter. Matt and I've been watching Somebody Somewhere. It's a wonderful story. And just for anyone who hasn't seen this yet, I definitely urge you to watch it. It's on HBO, available also on Amazon Prime if you're in the UK. And it's a story of middle-aged Sam played by Bridget Everett as she deals with grief, the loss of her sister and her self-acceptance as she tries to fit back into her hometown in Manhattan, Kansas, and it's largely based on Bridget Everett's life. And we heard that the origin story of this was that you were invited to 
there's like a bit of a longer story about how this came to be. You're invited to Sundance Theatre Lab, you're introduced to Caroline Strass, producer of Game of Thrones, and, and you worked with her on some other pilots, which didn't work out. But later on, Caroline thought of you for a project involving Bridget Everett. And I'm curious about what those first conversations looked like with Caroline or Bridget when they first considered you as someone who might write on the show. Sure. I'll just back up one little tiny bit just to connect to the beginning about maps and things. Everything is sort of small fires. So like from that theater company, it took like seven years of that theater company in New York for it to kind of kick in. Like I don't have any famous uncles like Paul Grubb Farm. Like we don't have anyone that sort of kicked it into high gear quickly. So I would say at year seven of hustling, people started sort of knowing about our plays and kept going. So someone came and saw one of our plays and on paper, they're weird. I mean, in the theater, they're weird too, but weird in a good way and weird in a way that stayed consistent with my work. So I'm very shocked that this show is on because it's a weird show in a wonderful me way. But, you know, all our plays used to be sort of a slow burn storytelling, not giant changes are happening for these characters. So I was really excited when someone came and saw a play, invited us to the Sundance Theater Lab. Thank you, Hanlon Dorsey Smith. A friend of ours brought Philip Pimberg. They saw, oh, this is what's on the page and this is how it translates onto stage doing that Sundance Lab and sort of sharing the way we work and sharing the maps of how we build plays and sort of over-create a world and then chisel down to the specific story we want to tell for a play. Carrie Putnam, who was running Sundance at the time, she saw this on the wall and she was like, this looks like a television room, what you're describing to me, like what I see here. And we were like, oh, weird. That's how we make our plays. That's what we do. So she connected us with Carolyn Strauss and we adapted one of our plays and that didn't get made. And I will say that, like, just for anyone out there, Somebody Summer is my fifth pilot that I sold. And I have a partner. So, like, it didn't make, like, that sounds incredible, but, like, it didn't change my life significantly. And Somebody Somewhere has just because a lot of people are seeing it. But it's like, it took a lot of writing. And then I did a couple rooms on the way. So this Somebody Somewhere, I was so excited when this shot, because I was like, I can't believe we got to make a pilot because we had seen a lot of things sort of in development sort of not happen. So anyway, we sold something that didn't happen with Carolyn. And then Paul and I had done a few rooms and written a couple other pilots. And then she reached out to us and she was like, hey, I know these people are Midwesterners because Paul's from Minnesota. I'm from Illinois. We're thinking about writing something for Bridget. And they were basically like, well, what would you write for Bridget? And Paul and I had seen her live shows for years. We'd be on the same bill for like different theater events, but we knew her work and we knew her like vibrant cabaret show. And we knew just also like how secretly heartbreaking she is. Not only is she hilarious in body, but we knew that she could like cut your heart open in a like this weird juxtaposition, which is just to connect to other things. The same thing that we like in Daniel Harms's work that we did in our senior thesis, the ability to go from to have a perfect collision where you go from one thing to another was so interesting in what she does. So we basically pitched them the pilot and Bridget really liked it, had a lot of things that were spoke to her, like she had a sister who passed away. And then we had sort of done the story of our Bridget ever didn't ever move to New York. And Sam is sort of Bridget, but she's not. But then as soon as HBO was excited and the Duplasses were excited, then immediately Bridget was like, then it was working with Bridget to adapt on that character and everything. But we sort of, the pilot was if you look back, we like writing for a specific actor. It's like what we did. Paul and I used to write just for ourselves as actors. And then we wrote for Oliver's mom and Michael Stoll Creighton and these specific actors. We like sort of the challenge of finding a way into someone that somebody maybe hasn't celebrated or figured out. Because I think we used to be like, no one's casting us and everything. We're playing all the old people and all these college plays. A lot of stage makeup, but we have so much potential. So I feel like we'd like to find these things in character, in, in actors that we like to find just different shades of stuff. Did I answer your question? You did. Yeah, it was. Re it's really interesting to go behind the scenes and hear you talk about it. And I'm curious about when you first shared your pitch, your sort of vision with Bridget and also Caroline, what feedback were you getting? What were they wanting you to potentially shift and change? I'll tell you, like when we had pitched other things, those were in the room in LA and you'd have to, I'll just behind the scenes stuff, you'd have to buy your ticket yourself out of your pocket 
to LA and it would be like, they want you on Tuesday and you'd be like, oh my God, the ticket's $1,400. But they'd be like, but if you get the pitch, if you, if they buy it, they'll reimburse you. And you're always like, this is the worst gamble of my life. So in the past, you'd have to just like get on a plane, memorize the pitch, put on your nicest thing, pack a steamer, like cut your hair. I don't know. You would do all the things where you're like, oh God. And then you have to be in the room. The great thing about being with Paul is there's two of us. So it's not you just freaking out and pretending to be confident. But now with Zoom, I like it more because you can like, I am wearing a shirt and pants right now, but you could like put on a top, put your house shoes on and you could like touch the ground. You can have like, you can sort of do it in the, in a comfortable position and you could pitch your heart out, but you don't have to be in the same room with someone, which there's pros and cons. I really like it. I think it's fun to pitch over Zoom. Right. But- so you pitched over Zoom and then, and what did they say? What was their response? Well, first we pitched it to Carolyn and Bridget, maybe. I don't remember if this is true or not. Maybe then we pitched it to the Duplasses also. And then maybe- We'll believe anything you say. Okay, it's either like, either Bridget and Duplasses were on that first one or it was, or there were three. There were either two or three of the same pitch at different times, kind of like a video game level one, level two, level three, that. I can't believe we got them to okay it. Any of it, any of it. I still am surprised when the bing bongs come on HBO. I'm still like, oh my God. You described Bridget Everett and how she can cut to the heart of a, she can really cut to your heart. You watch her and I found this about your show, somebody somewhere, one minute I'll be laughing, the next minute I'd have tears in my eyes. I'd just be so pulled by my emotions. Good, good. That's what we're trying. We want people to have feelings and be on the ride because that's what life is like. That's sort of what I'm interested in is life is just, hilarious and horrible at the same time. Well, let's dig a little more into the details of writing this and creating that world. And part of that was, it sounds like meeting Bridges' family in the town in Kansas. What was that like? What were you looking for? What was your note taking like when you're in Kansas? We, I'm looking off into the distance. Kansas is somewhere out there. I think what it was, was we got an okay to shoot the pilot. Now, I was like, that's never going to happen, but we got an okay. They were like, there's a budget if we shoot this in L.A. and there's one in New York and then there's one in the Midwest. And I think what we did was like a trip to the Midwest. And I got really excited because at first I was like, well, we should shoot it in Kansas. But then nobody does that. There's not enough crew or something there. And also the tech incentives in Chicago are a lot better. And there's this like amazing crew there. So I got really excited because I'm from Chicago. And I was like, oh, my God. If we get to shoot this in Chicago, this is going to be amazing. So I think my, I'm a little cloudy, but I think we went to Kansas first for like two days or something. We met her whole family and we drove around me, Carolyn Strauss, Bridget and myself. We got a car and we just drove around Kansas and we saw the prairie. And originally this show was, here's some fun fact. Originally the show was called Emporia. But then a little show called Euphoria also came out around the same time because there's this great little town called Emporia, Kansas. We're like, perfect. But then Euphoria came on and I was like, they're not going to have Emporia and Euphoria. (laughs) You know, because they're like, well, that's got to change. But then we also went to Emporia and it was too small. It was too small of a town for us to have some of the stuff we wanted to happen and the college town stuff. We needed a little more. Emporia is actually an incredible town. I love that town. There's a restaurant that was so great. There was a drugstore that was so incredible, but it was just a little too small for what we wanted to pull off. So then we drove and I remember we took, I don't know what highway this is. I have to look. And the prairie there was just so incredible. And it felt like we were in this other place. And I was like, okay, Kansas, I get it. I get it. So then we went to Bridget's hometown and she was kind of like, I don't know. We don't really want to do my hometown, do you? And then we were like, oh my God, Manhattan, Kansas. Yes. And we met her mom and we met her brothers and we went to a donut shop and we went to all the places that you see sort of in our TV version of the show. And we met how people just love her. We went to the chef and we just sort of fell in love with Manhattan. And then taking all that knowledge and also taking a lot of pictures of her mom's photos of Bridget was really key. That's like Mm -hmm in the pilot where you see like the beginning of those photos, we were like, oh my God, Bridget's family photos are so incredible. So anyway, we went to Chicago right like the next day and we drove 15 hours in a van all over Illinois trying to find a place that looked like Kansas. And then we sort of found a couple areas 
And we were like, oh my God, if I had driven from Brooklyn to Chicago, it would have been less hours if I just drove straight than what we did in the span. But we finally found some great Illinois prairie and we found Lockport and we found these other locations, this sort of limestone that's sort of similar to Kansas because we really were like, if we're going to fake it, we're going to have to fake it really well. And that's really important to Bridget. And that's really important to us. It's like all the details really matter. And that's how we recorded. I remember the question. That's how we recorded visiting her family. We took a lot of pictures. Great. Well, it's fun. I was watching it with my parents last night. And as I said, I'm watching from Ohio. And yeah, it, it was funny watching my parents' reaction to it. Especially my dad takes a lot of trips down to Southern Ohio, which is a big farm country. Yeah. So it was like, it was real. And that was what you managed to capture so well is real portrayal of rural life in a way uh-huh. that isn't making fun of, but is actually, which a lot sometimes Hollywood is keen to do, but actually yeah. make them really relatable. These are everyday people. I'm curious, like, what sort of things are you thinking about as you th- think about how do we portray these characters, either the main characters, the side characters, to make sure that it is striking that tone of being respectful and honest? I think we're used to Midwest characters having a joke beyond them. And that is sort of exactly what we didn't want to do. But I think with anything I write, I always want to be on the side of the character. Even if they're like a fucking mess, I want to understand sort of where they're coming from, not make them like a perfect person in the end. But I just, the, I don't love the joke to be on them. And I also, in this world, I think it would be a very different show if there was a wink on anything. So we tried to really just make every choice for these characters to be coming from a place of honesty and try to make it really realistic. So that goes on every level. That'll be in the details of the sets, what people are wearing in costumes, what they're saying. We always put something through Bridget also, like just to double check on like the colloquial little nuances of things have to be sort of perfect because there's a lot of pressure on Bridget. She's sort of representing her town, even though it's fictional. And we're sort of also very cognizant of that, where we don't want to be making fun of Midwesterners. Like, there's a lot of ridiculous things that happen on this show, but it's not at the expense of the characters. Even though there's, like, massive diarrhea, we want people to laugh with us during those moments of massive pooping. You do it so well. Huge spoiler, sorry. (laughs) I'd like to talk a little bit about the writing collaboration and the partnership that you have with Paul. We've heard and read that you almost have a twin-like connection, and you've spoken about this quite a bit in other interviews, which is amazing to find that in someone. And it sounds like you really harnessed it and held on to it. But we're curious, we're sure you've learned a lot, and you've mentioned this, you've learned a lot about what it takes to build a happy, healthy writing partnership. What are some of those traits, those values, those principles to your relationship? It's really hard to collaborate in general, in any form of any job. Like I think writing with someone is really hard. And so I always say, like, don't think like you have found your writing partner. Just work on a project. See how it goes. Mm. Because I think it's very hard. I sort of said this a little bit in like when I was talking about forming the debate society and finding the ways to argue. I call it arguing because in collaboration, you are arguing over ideas. And in ideas, it is very hard to separate your ego from them. So I think that Paul and I do well because, and we still argue, but we have found a way to do it where we separate our ego. I'm not taking something personally if he doesn't like an idea. Sure, I'm annoyed, but I trust him so much. If I'm like, here's an idea, I know this is crazy. Sometimes he'll find something in that. I think if we hadn't had so many years of working together, if he just poo-pooed it or said no without any explanation or in a rude way, I would take it personally. But now, because I've done it for so long, my ego doesn't get hurt. Now, when you're working on a new collaboration, it's very hard to do that. I don't know how you teach someone to take your ego out. I think you have to do it with trust and you can talk about it. And it's also like, I'm trying to sort of formulate this if someone out here has a writing partner and they're looking for a writing partner. I feel like there are rules to collaboration that you should maybe establish. And I think having a good talk about like, hey, I'm not going to take this personally if you don't like it. And also we like to work a lot. You know how like you give a disclaimer with an idea. Sometimes this happens in a writer's room all the time where you'll be like, this is probably terrible or like this is a horrible idea. 
that always helps because there's no pressure on the idea. Some people don't like doing that, but I think it's habit forming and I think it's not so bad. But it also is like, it might be terrible, which is saying like, it, it might be brilliant, but also not. And I don't know. And I'm waiting for your opinion on it. I feel like having good, clear conversations, just being like, I'm going to share some ideas. The best thing in this collaboration is for you to like hear them but not be rude about how you hear them. Because I think we take it so personally because we're so vulnerable. And sometimes you do have crazy ideas. Now, this could be verbally or in your writing. So I think just having a good communication of how you share and receive ideas, share and receive drafts, how you want notes. I think all those things help. I sort of filtered it as if these were new partnerships, but that's sort of things that have helped in the past. Because it's very easy to get burnt out in a collaboration quickly. Or to be like, I don't want to collaborate with this person because it's so painful. Things like that. It's so helpful. And, uh, you know, because Parl and I, as we collaborate so much. And so this concept of collaboration, we're always thinking about it. And how do we do it better? How do we yeah. take our egos out of it? How do we, and I think we have had a degree of time together to know our tendencies. So you say, okay, I trust you. We have similar values. And we know these things are taken with a grain of salt. But it's really, yeah, it's refreshing to hear you say that. So thank you. And also. The thing that exists between you two is better than on your own. Right. Whatever that thing is with those ingredients and both brains sort of editing, whatever the thing is you're making is usually more interesting than one person. I mean, yes and no to what I'm saying, but, you know, having two brains questioning things, having two brains getting excited about something, chiseling, sharing, like I often don't know what what's Paul's line and what my line is in something because it's had so much weaving and merging and mesh that it's inspiring to inspire someone else. And the echo and the telephone in that is really fun. And I think is deeper than sometimes when you sit down and you just try. Yeah. I'm curious about on a, for somebody somewhere, either on a, what does co-creation, co-writing look like on the season level and maybe even on at the episode level? Are you kind of coming together to discuss big ideas and then you go away and craft things on your own and bring them back together. What does that actually look like? Well, just black and white. Paul and I are a writing team. So in the Writers Guild, we share our scripts. So we share our fee. So we share our writing credit on our movie. It's both of us with an and in between. That film was written usually back pre-pandemic. We would be next to each other on a couch or on one computer. We are not economical we are looking at one moving cursor. We often then, or we'll divide and conquer if we're stuck, the same scene. We don't work like, here's my draft or here's my version of that scene. We'll do chunks and sections and do some merging and figuring things out or pull a line, but like ours is very mushed. So on a series level, we're both in our room together. We're both show running our show together. We're co-showrunners, we're co-managing and that's even another kind of collaboration where it's, you know, we're managing personalities, we're managing things on set. There are things that Paul's good at. There's things that I'm good at. It's a very mush, again, of uh, taking our strong suits. But then in the room, as a team, we're both co-show running, but we're also in there every day. Bridget Everett is in there. She's an EP. We work with her, like every part of these scripts. And this season, we and last season, we are sharing a bunch of episodes with her. So she's also co-writing with us, which is actually super wonderful and great. So talk about the mushing of mushing. And that is a super collaborative. That's a collaboration on top of a collaboration in our writing room because we're working with Carolyn Strauss and Lisa Crohn's also in our room this year. Yeah, we have a very small room. But anyway, so we have a sort of small I don't even know what a traditional writing room is anymore, but we're breaking a season together and we do ours all. I think you had been asking before, like what our room looks like and our room is on Zoom. And prior to the pandemic, I was in rooms that were in real life with real snacks. Now we're on Zoom with your home snacks, which that's the only bad downside of working in your own home. It's that you are responsible for your own snacks and the half the fun of being in your writing room used to be shared snacks. Hmm. But yeah, it's collaborating with a lot of people via Zoom just like this breaking, using Miro. Do you guys use Miro ever for breaking stories? We have, but we should use it more. It's such a cool tool. It's cool. It's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious because sometimes when a lot of people collaborate, things can get vanilla. Like you, when you try to drive to consensus, you can then take some of the more interesting ideas that as individuals we might have. How do you balance that to make sure, okay, we're not just driving to consensus. This is actually 
the best, most interesting idea that we can come up with as a team. Is that something you think about or struggle with? Yeah. Well, no one in our room likes vanilla stuff. And I know that Bridget and Carolyn and myself and Paul, like we're always trying to do this show specifically to like what it is. It's a weird show. This is not like a crazy story driven show. Like our main character for season one, like moves from like a couch to a bed seven episodes later. Like it is, this is small growth, but like that is totally what we're interested in because we're interested in sort of like real life where people don't change that much. They don't change that fast. In TV, they do. So we're constantly saying like, well, in a normal television show, you would do this. But in our television show, we do this. So that's a really fun barometer to be like, normally on TV, you do this. So that's a big thing that comes up in our room. Also, Carolyn Strauss has encouraged us to make the show we want to make and to really embrace Bridget and to put a ton of Bridget in it. And working with Bridget to put Bridget in it has been phenomenal because it's coming from a place of like truth and honesty and vulnerability. And then she portrays that so beautifully in her acting and her writing. She's really participates in that on such a deep level. And then HBO, we're very lucky I'm knocking on wood. They have also encouraged us to make the show that we want to make, which is, again, it's a weird show. And I say that with like the most respect. We're very lucky that we get to make this show about Midwesterners and people who are not 20. No offense to people here who are 20, but it's just it's a specific and it's a specific kind of storytelling. It's accumulation of details and just a woman who has a superpower of singing, but like has such self-worth problems that she's constantly struggling with. I feel like we're very lucky that we get to be on HBO. Yeah, that's incredible. And I'm just curious, one question about collaboration, because as you say, you and Paul have such a intertwined and meshed relationship with each other. Was it difficult to introduce even someone like Bridget or Caroline? Was there any resistance on your end? What made it work, bringing other writers into your world? I think there wasn't any resistance. I was just so excited that I could get a chance to try to do my best, like that Paul and I could do what we do to facilitate this show, because this is our first thing that ever got made on this level. And it's our first time show running. So I think I was more like jazz to try to do my best job of what I had been doing, but on just like a bigger level of sort of show running. But theater sort of prepared me for that. I'd love to talk a little bit about Sam now and the character. As you said, she's messy. She's real. I find her very lovable. I didn't expect to like her when I first started. And by the end of episode one, I, I loved her. I thought she was just so complex. And as you've been saying, she doesn't change much, yet she changes enough to keep you intrigued and to keep you on her side. And I wonder if you can tell me anything about what you think changes, what you were intending for her to change in order to hook uh, a watcher like me. Well, TV's complicated because I'd written for other people's rooms, but I hadn't done it on my own level where you want to keep the audience engaged each week and you want to keep them engaged enough to keep watching the whole season. And you want to keep your network happy enough to want to know what happens in another season. So that's a tricky thing to keep enough story happening, but not wrap everything up enough that this is your last season, your one and only season. So it's hard to sort of dangle those things. But then when you look at it, you're like, each scene of every episode has to be making progress for our main character in every single scene. So it might not be hitting you over the head in our show, but it all has to help Sam's drive. That's really what we come down to. And I keep saying, like, we're not a real drivey show, but we ask that question in any scene we present. Any scene has to really propel us to keep going with Sam and always sort of asking, where are we with Sam's journey? What is her relationship to this? What is her relationship to singing? What is her relationship to her family? Where is she at with Joel? What is Joel doing in this scene that's connected to his drive? And how is that also connected to Sam's? So we're doing all that TV work, but just more subtly. I wonder if you can, if we just focus on season one, can you tell us anything about the story arc? Like whether there are any sort of, I suppose, any major crossroads you had when deciding on how you wanted her character progress from the start of season one to the end of it? Yeah. We knew that singing gets opened in the pilot for Sam after many years, and it's the catalyst of Joel's character that excites her. I'm not spoiling anything if you haven't seen the show. In the pilot, we sort of know that like Pandora's box is open. And then how does she 
re-engage with this thing that's like her true love. Like singing is her true love. And she has this person that sees her in the way that she wants to be seen. So like through this new friendship, she opens this up and the struggle with her self-worth, if she has enough worthiness to be happy and to sort of get in her own skin again is how she's re-engaging with the world. And in this first season, singing is what does that. And Joel encourages her. And then this group of friends, which is her found community, keeps encouraging her. And then she sort of slowly gets out of her shell a bit. She's got like the pressures of family on her. She's got the looming sadness of her sister and she's living in the memory of her sister in her home. She's got all these other things, but it's really singing that's trying to break her out of this deep sadness and to sort of re-engage in her life. And that's why we kind of call it this like coming of age, middle age story. So she kind of gets the second chance, but it's not like the second chance in like a made for TV movie. It's more of like a really slow one. And then you get to see her sing and her come out of her shell in these moments. You know, I was thinking to myself, this is like a coming of age story for midlife crisis, like for middle aged people. And I I thought I was being very smart, but clearly this is your intention all along. I really love hearing your thought process behind it, especially someone who really loves the series. Thank you. And we always go back to Bridget. I know it's Sam, but like, what would you do? If you were forced on the stage at this moment or how, where would singing right now, we don't have singing in this episode. How would she connect to singing in this moment or what would the song be? Or those were kind of the moments of just checking with Bridget, who's just such a beautiful writer and performer. So within our community, there's often a lot of conversation around story structure and there's so many different methodologies out there and whether it's Save the Cat or so many others, what's your relationship to it? either as a team, individually? Is it something you're consciously thinking about? Do you think about structure and certain beats you're trying to hit when you get stuck? Or is it just so ingrained in your storytelling muscles by now that you don't consciously think of structure? I mean, I guess when we were writing the first season, I was like, are we allowed to do this? We definitely had a lot of moments where we like cut things in the edit room that just felt like a TV show. And we were like, no, in the end, I love season one because there were things that were sort of driving story in a traditional TV way a little bit in a couple of moments, and we didn't have to use those. I am personally more interested in a different kind of storytelling than traditional on page 26, this has to happen. But at the same time, there has to be a drive. A lot of it's character-driven, and it can't just be character-driven. It has to be really specific. So I guess I'm kind of like a combo of There needs to be drive, but I like it when it's not like on the nose or where it's more subversive and it's accumulation of details. But if you go back and watch it, you're like, I this. Yep. Oh, I didn't. Those are my favorite kinds of sort of things. Thank you. I'd love to talk a little bit before we move on to we're going to talk about your career and process in a moment. But I just wanted to ask a question about friendship is at the heart. As you say, there's a lot of this series is character driven. Sam and Joel's relationship is really important. Actually. You said something earlier, which really struck me. You said that she meets someone who sees her how she wants to be seen. And that's what Joel does for Sam. And I wondered if you had any tips. If someone in this room or someone listening is creating a novel or a screenplay with friends at the heart of it, do you have any tips for how they might, or questions they might ask themselves in order to really grow the relationship between two characters? That's a great question. Or is there anything that you find helps you when you've been thinking about Sam and Joel, like trying to get them to connect as friends? Is there any sort of vision you had in mind of how they would interact in order to show their love for each other as friends? Some of the fun of season one is that Joel and Sam connect. And then with their friendship, they kind of unravel each other a bit. And I feel like that's part of the fun. And that's a very true thing that happens sort of in high school where you get sort of overlap with someone and then you sort of become together and one in some ways. And then you also sort of like, there's a good and bad influence, I think, on things. And I think exploring that is really fun. I think there's a lot of comedy and a lot of sadness in the dangers of friendships, of closeness. But when I first started hearing your question about somebody writing something and how to get through something, and I thought you were going to ask me about like a confidence thing. And Joel sort of gives her some confidence So I think it's sort of interesting and might be a good thing to explore of how a friend can sort of help you see yourself in a different way, almost like to be a mirror. And I don't mean like dialogue words of telling someone 
But like sometimes friendships can pull you out of yourself and give you a chance to sort of explore different sides of yourself or someone else can see you in the way that that you want to be seen. They sort of can brush away the clouds a bit, give you a little bit of sunlight, and then you can put the clouds back, but they can still try to brush them away. I love the unraveling. I love that word as well, unraveling. It made me think of just love, falling in love, I suppose, and it's sort of similar. Well, that's what that sort of is. It is sort of a love story between friends, older friends. Yeah. And there's a danger to that unraveling. It's not all rosy. It's actually you're, they're poking each other in their, I don't know if they're, it's their wounds, but they're seeing each other and they're not afraid to go with that unraveling because they care so much about each other. We ask a lot, what's the adventure that Sam and Joel will get to go on? Because those are the moments that are just so fun. Like these two characters just sitting in a car watching someone buy a hot dog on paper sounds real boring, but like, we're like, no, this is the fun of a small town. Like you spend so much time in a car and it's that they're igniting each other. They're feeding off of each other. They get to be a little naughty and bad. And the dialogue in those scenes and the improvs that actually happen in addition to that were just like fire because I'm like, we have a Petri dish and these two personalities and they're just like flames. How much of that is improv? It is very scripted. Bridget's in the room with us and she's on some of these scripts and she's got a hand in everything. So she knows the map. And when we were on set, there are tweaks after we sort of got a scene, there are tweaks and there's room for play. And then we just have great actors. Like Jeff Hiller is an incredible uh, improviser. Mike Haggerty, who passed away, was like this king of Second City. He was so funny. He could nail exactly what was written and then just sort of also play. And we used so much of that. There is improv, but we always get what we need and then adapt to people as well. Oh, well, thanks for that. It's so beautiful. We're, we can't wait for everyone to watch it. So let's talk a little bit, zooming out about the industry a bit too. So congratulations, HBO signed on for a third season, which is wonderful. And curious, you know, as lay people here, what sort of metrics are HBO looking at to gauge what success looks like for them today? And maybe how has success evolved over time, if you know that? But yeah, what are they looking for to say, okay, yes, let's do a, a third season? I don't know. That's the funny thing. I don't know. I know that Amy Gravit, our exec, is incredible and a really supportive pal on this show. And she gives incredible notes. So she's really supportive of the show, thank God. But I don't know. All of that is sort of, it's sort of what's not being shared. So we mm. won't know much. Yeah. I know that our reviews are really lovely, which is great. And I think that matters when we've been up for some stuff. But I don't really know. And I am so grateful we have a third season because I just wanted to make it again. But I don't really know the answer to that. Well, thanks for the honesty. It's good to know we're not the only ones in the dark. Yeah. I'm curious, personally, how do you gauge with whether to continue with a project or not? Intrinsically to say, okay, yes, we do want to do a season three. What, what sort of things are you checking in on with yourself? Well, I want to keep making the show until they tell us we can't because I just love the people and the collaboration. And I really like the people making the show, like Duplass, Carolyn, HBO, the actors, Bridget, everyone. It's like really, I think it's a rare thing. So I don't want to not do it until someone says that we can't and then I'll be pretty sad. But I think in general, I think that working with kind, hardworking people is my goal. And if I'm not in a situation where that would be the case, I think it's hard. It's really hard to continue. It's a great goal. Kind, hardworking people. <laughs> Sounds like the Midwest, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's probably it. Yeah. So a bit of a hypothetical question for you. If you can entertain us, humor us. Yeah. If you were to wake up tomorrow morning yeah. without any of the experience, storytelling chops potentially that you have now or the contacts that you've built and made over the last decades, but you have an idea for a pilot, a show, something you'd love to create and to have produced, what steps do you think you would take to give it the best chance of being produced? Knowing that a lot of is outside of your control, but knowing what you know now without the context and experience, how might you go about trying to get that thing made? I think it's really, that's a really good question. The dumb answer and the first thing I thought of is just I would try to channel exactly what I want to write and get into that zone, which is that great zone that's so hard to get into. 
And I would maybe do an edit in that zone as much as I could. And I'd write the thing I wanted to write. I don't know what that might be, you know, a screenplay, maybe. I'm not sure. And then I would probably ask myself the first question I'd be like, is there something else like this? And why is this like uniquely my story that I want to tell right now? And I would just like really try to put my heart into it. And I would probably know that part of whatever sharing would be a little scary to me because I'd be like, okay, this might be good. If I'm getting those feelings where you're like, this feels exciting to me because it feels different or something where it feels sort of active and alive and I've done my best work, then I would feel, and that's that rare feeling. I feel like maybe I'm talking to people who might know that where you're like, you can write every day, but like maybe there's like a half a page or a page where you're like, I think that part is good. Like that moment. And you're looking in whatever that thing is in your heart or mind or whatever. That's the area that I feel like should be guiding you on that project. And when you feel really good about it, then I would like share it with one person that you're like a little scared of, but also really trust them and to get their take and do that edit. And then after that, I would go forward. And if you do have that feeling about the thing you want to write, I would not let anyone dim your light on it with bad notes. So I would not give it to like five to 10 people and I would not let someone make it into the thing they want to make. So I would say, keep some control on it. Keep it to be the thing that you want. Really put your heart in it. It might take a long time. Things take a long time. I'll just say that. Things take a long time. And that's a hard thing to swallow. But that's the zone I would go into something. And then you can figure out about like finding the person who actually can help you or who's going to light the way. Those are the business sides of things. And that just comes from being got to find those people and be consistently nice to the world. Not be a jerk. But um, yeah. So beautiful. I feel like this is a pep talk people might need to remind themselves of in the coming weeks and months and years. Thank you, Hannah, for that. I'm curious because there are, I don't want to brush over the, and then taking it forward and finding that those right people. Because if someone's like, I don't, where do you even start? Where, who are those people? Where do they live? What, where do they hang out? Are there certain resources or places you might say, okay, I got this thing. It feels really good. I've shared with one person. Who are those people that might help me make this thing? Are you asking me who they are? Yeah. If you have Don, a, Tim, Sarah, Susan, I'm just kidding. I don't know who they are. Or at least resources or, or places to begin searching for these people. Yeah. I feel like it's hard. It's like you might have a connection and I don't know what that means to you, but everyone maybe might have a connection of a friend, a thing. It's always hard to do those asks. And I know from my acting mm. side of when I was really, that brought me a lot of heartache because it's hard to ask someone to read something. And you can't ask someone to read five things or four versions of your thing. So you have to find the right person and you need to ask them to read something for you. And you need to probably do it like once, maybe twice, depending on your relationship with them. I'm talking in like total what ifs, but I'm like, there might yeah. be someone who knows someone that you trust and respect and admire. And you're like, I'm, I know that I'm a friend of so-and-so's and I I really respect your work. This is something I've been working on for a long time. I don't want to overstep, but I would love to send you my blank. It's hard to do those things. It's a vulnerable thing, but like it's one one or two people doing a favor is how things sometimes happen. That might be someone who leads to something else. Like I always say, like with our theater company, we always got our work from people seeing our plays. Like Paul and I got into our first writer's room because someone read our play Jacuzzi. They just read a play of ours, this weird play about having a jacuzzi in a cabin in Colorado and we played like psycho killers and the script's good and weird. But I was like, that play got like us to get in a room with like Mozart in the jungle. It's like, so all our work came from work. So I like to say that like, make your work be the channel of the thing you really want to write and get that work to be the thing that gets you in those doors, which is hard, but it'll work. It just might take some time. I love the return to the craft. And I think a reminder that things always take longer than you think in almost any industry. Yeah, they just take a long time. But who knows what's time now? It's all like the world is so weird. The four years, six years, it's all the same. What year is it? I have no idea. There's an author we interviewed a few years back, Amal Al-Motir, and she mentioned this idea of trading up problems as a writer. She said, as you become more successful, your problems or struggles, they don't go away. They simply evolve. And I, we're curious how this applies to you. Whether you could share any problems or struggles that you face today that we might be surprised that you still face at this stage of your career, whether that's a mental, creative, financial challenge. 
I mean, I think all the same problems. I think financial confidence, inspiration, all the same. I still have all the same struggles, but at the same time, I'm grateful for what I have. I feel pretty much the same. I just like my job right now a lot. I like my job a lot. And I've been sort of a one-track mind. So because I've been working on the show for several years now, but I would say that the struggles of writing still continue. So it's maybe a bummer, but I would say not much changes. In a way, it's kind of wish. I mean, it's kind of reassuring to hear different answers yeah. to this because I think it kind of re- many of us feel this in the community, but think that we're alone in it and just knowing that actually we're in it together. The sort of strug- struggle to, as you say, inspiration, right? Self doubt. I mean, writing is pretty crazy. You're like, I'm going to write down words that someone else is going to read and hear them in their own head. So to even have the confidence enough to be like, I'm a writer, I'm going to write these words down and someone else is going to have to read it. I feel like that you already are a little mad anyway. So you have to be a little bit crazy to be an artist anyway. So if you were just like, well, I've made it now and writing's really easy, I would think that person's like a monster or terrible at their job. When you feel self-doubt, how do you talk to yourself? What what helps you shift from that? Or is it Paul, perhaps, your partner? Paul, it's sad. I have this other voice in my brain, which is Paul, and he has the same. It's sort of a hilarious, it's a luxury that we have each other. Yeah, no, I understand that. I have Matt in my head. Yeah. I have self-doubt, so I totally understand that. Yeah, ditto. We, have a, we talked to a playwright and we're like explaining our process to her. And she's like, well, that's the same gymnastics I do in my head. You guys just have each other. And I'm like, yeah, we just say it out loud. We're like, is this the worst idea in the world? That's what you usually say to yourself. You're like writing and you're like, is this good or bad? To each other, we're like, is this good or bad? He's like walking down the street and I'm like, what if blah, blah, blah. So I have that, but just via cell phone or in person or on a computer or in a text. I guess we just have more receipts of it. We have more receipts of the insanity of figuring out stories and life and writing. Partnerships are superpowers. We wish that for everyone to have that person. Or those people. Um, so just a, a time check. We probably have time for maybe one or two questions from us, but then we will turn it over to any questions here. So if you do have a question for Hannah, please pop it into the chat now. Hello, listeners. Just a note from us at the London Writers' Salon. Our interviews are recorded in front of a live online audience. And so at this point in the interview, we turn to audience questions. Would you like to be a part of the live audience and ask your own questions? Head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. You can buy tickets to the online events or get free access to them as a member. Now, back to the interview. So, present moment, just to timestamp this, so it's July 2023, and we're in the middle of writers and actors strike right now. Curious, how are you and maybe other writers staying in touch with your creativity as the guild went pens down? What are you doing to yeah, stay in touch? Great question. I am pens down. I am not writing. And I also am in SAG, so I'm not acting. But I am not writing right now, which is restorative because now I've been not writing since May and my brain is working differently again. So we've been going for a while on this show and I'm having this thing happen now where I can go to like a museum and see a painting and have like inspiration for a character or a story or something. So I've had a little bit of like a, of a pause and now I'm able to receive new ideas again, which I haven't had in a long time. And that feels good. And I think that when the strike is over, I will be much stronger for storytelling, but I'm not like writing anything right now, which is crazy. Yeah. I imagine. Do you journal at all? So I journal my son's life every day. And then this is my like sad journal of like my life and not sad, but you know, like all your bullshit. And I have a bullshit, which is sort of all, often in a list form. I do journal and I always have, and I should burn them when I, before I die. <laughs> yep. Do you, do you journal every day or every week or do you have, is it a consistent schedule or just when you feel like it? I'm someone who doesn't like pressure. So I just do it as a bonus, but I would say every, um, sometimes it's like three times a week. Sometimes it's just depends how much I need it. Yeah. It feels really good. And I have a paper calendar as well. Like I can't do a phone calendar. And that's also sort of a, a, like, I have to have these weird, these like books, you know, with your calendar, like this kind of crap, like the scratching out of what happens. That's also my, another journal. So yeah, I do journal, but I don't do like 
when I wake up and think the first thought, I'm more like, oh my God, me a coffee, I'm going to die. Yeah. I wish I was more likely to journal when I'm in a good place, but it seems like it's almost, it's almost always when I'm in a bad place that I'm like, okay, I need to journal. I guess that's not a bad thing, but it's yeah. an interesting reminder. Um, yeah. I think it's really good to journal. So at the salon, we often like to talk about our mountaintop, just what we're aiming for. I know you have season three coming up, but I wonder if there's anything else. If you look off out your window into the distant future. Off into yeah. Kansas. What, what, what else are you dreaming of? What would you love to happen for you? I just want to keep making this show until they tell us we can't. And then, because I do love this so much, I want to be able to find at some point something else that feels this satisfying because this feels very rare. And then just on a nuts and bolts, like I'm excited to write a movie because when I was writing plays, I'd be excited to write for television. When I wrote for TV, I'd miss plays. And then when I wrote plays, I was like, oh, I want to write. It's like, I like going back and forth in form. So because we're in this TV world, I do want to write another screenplay because it ends and you don't have to think about keeping up those balls so that you have to keep story going. I'm excited to have figure out something that's closed. But I want to keep making this until I can't. Awesome. Well, I hope you do. Well, thanks for, again for spending time with us, Hannah. Wishing you all the best of luck. We're rooting for you. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time, keep writing. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.